Hello, friends, and welcome to episode 208 of the Latter-day Lives podcast. I'm your host, Sean Rapier. Thank you so much for uh, joining us again this week, especially after missing last week. It's really good to be back with you. As I mentioned uh, last week in my little disclaimer about how we were having technical difficulties, it was really frustrating. And then this week, I almost didn't get an episode out once again. Uh, I was traveling all week to San Diego on business down at my office down there and had no time to work on the episode. And by the time I got home on Thursday night, I really wasn't feeling great. And by Friday, I was full blown, just really sick and had a terrible cold and it didn't go away and the symptoms felt weird. So I took a COVID test and yep, I have COVID. So my throat is uh, sounding kind of weird. And in fact, I had sent a message out to our team saying that there wouldn't be an episode this week. But it's late Sunday night, I suddenly had a little bit of energy and I'm grateful that we're able to, to get an episode out. I've been so excited for you to hear this episode. But before we get into it, we do want to thank uh, a new reviewer on Apple Podcasts. Uh, the listener name, such a cute listener name, Dabubu. Uh, left us a five-star review. Thank you so much for the kind words and the five stars. We really appreciate it. It sure does help us in being found by people who are looking for good content. My guest on the show this week, Jen Spencer, is an absolute incredible human being. She is so amazing. And I was so touched by this. It really just stuck with me ever since we did the interview uh, a few weeks back. Her story is just an incredible story of redemption and the power of the atonement for all of us. And I will uh, put out there just the warning that of course, as always, we never get into deep detail on anything, but uh, Jen's story does involve uh, addiction, self-harm, um, suicide, all kinds of themes that uh, might be difficult for some of our listeners, as well as certainly it would not be uh, an appropriate episode for very small children. Uh, but it is one of the greatest stories of redemption that I've ever heard, and I'm just so excited for our listeners to get to hear it. The power of the atonement shines through, and Jen is a just amazing, amazing human being. And so very excited for you to hear that. So that's all coming up in this incredible conversation with Jen. And coming up this week in my Latter-day Life, Monday, Monday. It's all coming up. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this week's conversation. And today here on the Latter-day Lives podcast, my guest has been through a whole lot, has had a lot of trials and uh, a lot of redemption in her life as well, and has just a beautiful life story to tell. Jen Spencer, welcome to the show. Thanks, Sean. I'm excited to be here. I'm so thrilled to have you here. I don't know much of your story. I was able to read a little bit. And uh, we want to, before we even get started, we just want to thank Rosemary, from your ward who just raved about you and just glowed about uh, what an awesome person you are. So Rosemary, thank you. We love it when our listeners suggest people. So Jen, we're going to get to know you. First of all, tell us where you're recording from. Um, I'm in Layton, Utah. Yeah, up in northern, the northern part of Utah. Fantastic. And uh, let's get into a little bit of your younger life. Tell us uh, where you were born, kind of a uh, little bit about your younger years. 
Um, so I was born in Texas. Uh, I'm kind of a military brat. I didn't live in Texas very long. We, we kind of moved around a lot. Um, ended up in my very early years in Germany. We lived there for about three years in Frankfurt. And then we moved back to the States, to Utah, actually, in 84. And we've kind of been here ever since. Were you raised in the church? I was. Um, our, my my parents, they were inactive for a time before I was born. And today is actually the day they went through the temple together. Um, oh, awesome. My mom sent me a text this morning and said, I was pregnant with you. Thanks for coming with us. So I thought it was kind of <laughs> cool. They've been strong ever since. So you make it into Utah uh, and then you're getting into your, you know, more adolescent than child years. Uh what were you into as you were kind of getting getting into junior high, t- that type of uh, time? Believe it or not, I was just really into books. I didn't have a ton of friends, you know, until probably till I got into high school. But um, the library was technically my first addiction. <laughs> uh, as weird as that sounds, I'll explain a little bit about that, though. <laughs> yeah. I call it an addiction for a reason. Because an addiction is something that makes your life unmanageable. Uh, this this obsession I had with the library was absolutely an addiction. I was I was obsessed with uh, losing myself in somebody else's life. I wanted to just constantly be in a story because I didn't like me, and so I was going to the library three or four times a day. I was checking out four or five books. And then I'd take them back as soon as I read them. And I was reading them in class and I was reading them at lunch. And I was like, and finally my librarian was like, Jen, you can come here one time a day. That is it. Like, you know how a a bartender will cut someone off. It's like, Jen, you've had enough. You've had way too much. So anyway. See, and I laughed when you said that was your first (laughs) addiction. I chuckled at it, but it sounds like, I mean, it really was a, a, a true addiction. I wasn't doing homework and I was lying about it. I was saying my homework was done. Um, I was coming home from from school and checking the mail so that I could intercept letters that the school was sending home saying that I had bad grades. I had all these missing assignments like it. Seriously, my life was very unmanageable and I was only in third grade. Were you aware that this was an issue? No. I didn't realize it was an addiction until years, years later. But I remember every year uh, school started and I was thinking to myself, this year is going to be different. I'm going to do my homework. I'm I'm not going to fall behind in my assignments. And and, uh, you know, I would do good for a few weeks and then it would just crumble and I was right back in it. So my gosh. All right. So how did that whole library thing then end up coming to a head? As I got older, um, my addiction just changed. You know, typical teenager became addicted to the phone. It was making my life unmanageable because I was uh, stealing phone cards. I was making all these long distance calls. I was, you know, back when they charge you for long distance calls, I was racking up huge bills and lying about it. My parents, uh, my poor parents, (laughs) I was a nightmare for them at times. (laughs) I had a lot of emotional problems and a lot of depression. And I think I was always like kind of 
crying on somebody's shoulder, I guess, all the time. You're literally talking about a a phone that's plugged into the wall with a very long Mm -hmm. cord. It was very expensive to call long distance. And you had no idea really how expensive it was till you got the bill. Well, and we lived in an area where everywhere was really long distance. How was your social life at high school, actually in school? Elementary school and junior high, I felt kind of outcast a little bit. Um, I, I didn't have a lot of friends. I, I had friends that were in my ward. So the girls in my ward, I was really good friends with. But other than that, I, yeah, I just didn't have a, and I was so shy and I was always just to myself, you know, reading books. And, you know, it wasn't until I got into high school that I really kind of changed my personality, changed drastically, actually. So So, talk about that change. I guess I suddenly didn't care what anybody thought of me. I was dealing with a lot of depression, though, when I got into high school. Um, I had a very serious uh, cutting problem, and I was attempting suicide. And, you know, I just kind of got to this point where I just didn't want to live anymore. I attempt, I had several attempts and luckily they were failed attempts, but I honestly was terrified to die. Um, but I was in so much pain and I just wanted it to stop. And I didn't know how else to get it to stop other than just to end it. Mm. Um, I, I felt very much that, um, that God was mad at me. God hated me. And ever since I was the age, you know, right around seven, that's when I realized I hated myself. And honestly, it all stemmed from a very warped understanding I had of repentance. I had this idea in my mind that if you repent for something, you do something bad, and then you repent for it, and then you do it again. It's like the first one didn't count, and it's almost like you're spitting in God's face, and so now it's ten times more, like ten oh, times no. worse. And so in my mind, I felt like I was constantly heaping on more and more reasons for God to hate me, and I hated oh. me. And so a lot, all of my addictions stemmed from this horrible belief and um, feelings I had about myself, if that makes any sense. Jen, I, I could cry right now. I, I can't, I can't even, I mean, that is just so painful and, and it, it makes it, I understand better now why you went through what you went through. If you had that understanding, this is why it's so important that we talk so plainly with our kids and our youth about what the atonement really is, because yes. when misunderstood something that powerful When you were going through this, how aware were your parents of your pain and your struggles? Well, when I was 14, that was um, pretty much my first suicide attempt. So that was not something that, I mean, that it became very obvious to them at that point. They were aware. Yeah, I spent some time and even before the suicide attempt, I, I, I expressed some serious depression that I was feeling. And and so they did get me some help and they were aware. Um, 
of my depression and the the way I was feeling, but I don't think they really understood it. And quite honestly, I didn't have the words to explain it. I don't know why I didn't use plain English. I didn't know that I could, I guess. I, yeah. um, I would I would just act out. And so it, it, I started smoking. I started cutting. I started shaving my head. Like all these things I was doing, I was just acting out. But I wasn't really saying what was wrong because I was so ashamed of the things that I knew I had done. And I didn't want them to know. Does that make sense? That totally makes sense. Out of fairness to you, uh, I think most people that are the age that you were at that time struggle to express themselves. You don't have the same toolkit you have as an adult. But then also the early 90s were not the 2020s. Um, You know, we did not speak about these things as openly. And, you know, um, you know, there was a lot more, whether or not there was judgment, there was perceived that there would be judgment. Stigma. Stigma for sure. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it was a different time then. So it makes sense what you're saying that, that this would have been difficult and you're looking around and feeling like, well, none of my friends have this, I assume. Like, did you feel like, why am I so different from the rest of the world? Yeah. Um, and especially in regards to like my testimony, I, you know, the girls that I would go to church with, I, I looked up to them and I was so like, I wished so badly that I could have the kind of testimony that they appeared to have, you know? And I mean, when you're on the outside, look, you, you know what I mean? When you're looking at someone else and kind of I wish I was more like that. I didn't feel like anyone struggled with the same things that I was struggling with. And I wanted what my friends had as far as like testimony and not doing dumb things, not like making these stupid choices like I was making, you know, smoking. And it just seemed like I wouldn't do my homework. So I was always getting bad grades. What age were you when when uh, drugs came into your life? I was about 18. Oh, okay. Yeah. So through your high school years, it was more of depression, cutting, smoking, suicide Mm -hmm. attempts. Mm -hmm. But then at 18, did you start into hard drugs or did you start with, with marijuana? Where did you start? So, yeah, I did start with marijuana. I had a friend who was going to try it and, and she I, I remember telling her because I had a friend who who had an addiction to uh, to crank, um, which is kind of like a form of meth. Um, and I remember when my friend told me she wanted to try marijuana, I was like, "No, please don't do it. Like you're going to end up an addict. You're going to turn out like my fr- like. Don't do that, you know." Mm. And and I, I I pleaded with her not to do it, and she's like, "No." I I really want to try it. So I, I'm going to. And and I remember, you know, just thinking, well, you know, I didn't want her to do it alone. You know what I mean? And yeah. so when when they say peer pressure, you know, I didn't have anyone egging me on trying to get me to do it. I did it because I just didn't want my friend to be by herself. The saddest part. Um, a lot of people will say, oh, you can try it once you won't get hooked the first time. And I absolutely was. 
out of that entire group of friends uh, that I got high with, I'm the only one who knew from that moment on I was an addict and hopelessly addicted. I fell in love with the feeling that I had on marijuana. And I knew because it was so interesting for the first time in, I don't know how many years, I didn't have any desire to cut. I had no depression. And so all of that just kind of like, you know, and, and I was laughing and I was just having fun. And um, I knew I was hooked and I wasn't able to stop from the very first hit. And every single day I wanted to die because I knew, do you know what I mean? Like it, yeah, I it do. was like, it was like the depression wasn't there while I was high, but I knew I was going to come down. So if I'm understanding you right, the getting high took away the depression and the pain for the time that you were high, which means that you'd wake up in the morning, not high. And the only desire is to get high so that you didn't have to deal with the depression and the pain, which causes more depression and pain when you are not using drugs. Does that sound about right? Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. And, and not only, not only in the morning, just two hours later, when you come down, got to get high again. Like I was high all the time. It, I mean, from the moment I started, I was always high. If I was out of bed every time, like it, and that went on for 20 years. How high functioning of an addict were you? There were times where I was fairly functioning as okay. an addict, um, especially once I got into meth. Um, it was a lot more clear headed, I guess. Uh, I was able to come up with some interesting ways to make money that, that didn't involve committing crime, which was important to me at one point. Okay. Um, So let's talk about meth, because when you say the word meth, all of a sudden it goes into breaking bad. It goes into heavy, (laughs) heavy crime. It goes in. I mean, it's it's, truly it's 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 addicts that you see on the streets there. There's there is so much heaviness to it. So let's talk about your transition from. Uh, and, and I never want to downplay marijuana. I don't know. Of course not. We've seen, I've seen a lot of people who that's brought a lot of pain into their lives, but Mm. meth is a, it's its own animal. So how did you transition into, into meth? Talk a little bit about that. So uh, my my marijuana addiction, um, lasted for a good two solid years. Um, and then I, I landed myself into two treatment centers. So I went to a treatment center. I was off drugs for a couple of years. Um, Mm. I got married. Um, I met my husband in rehab, which is a bad idea. Don't ever do that. Like that was the worst, the worst place in on the planet to find a spouse is somebody that you're in treatment with. I have heard that before, by the way, I have heard that. Yes. Yeah. One of my dumbest moments. Yeah. (laughs) So um, I got married and uh, my marriage was, uh, difficult. I started using meth to stay awake around him, which wasn't the sanest choice that I've ever made. But, um, he, he had been smoking marijuana. And so 
brought the drug world back into my life, you know, even it just started, you know, just a little bit here and there together. I started using meth to stay awake around him. I felt that there was this tidal wave of emotion that was chasing me. And meth was the only thing that kept me running faster. And I was so afraid that once that caught up with me, it was going to just crush me. And so I never came down. Like for seven years, I stopped sleeping. I threw away my bed. I eventually, I got a divorce and he was prosecuted. But for seven years, I, I stayed up as long as I could. So I was usually up for like five to seven days. And then my oh. body would just give out. And I would just crash for three or four days and not like I never had any idea. I'm actually shocked that I'm still alive because I would wake up and I didn't know what had happened. I didn't know where I was. I never knew when my body was going to give out and I was just going to crash. I was selling meth at the time to support my habit. And that's something that uh, I still struggle to forgive myself for. Um, but But you were doing what it took to survive at that time. I mean, I can hear the pain and I mean, yeah, these are the things that, yes, they're hard to forgive ourselves. Yeah. They're the most important things is you were in survival mode. I mean, you were doing what it took to stay alive. Literally, Jen. Yeah. I was an absolute nightmare for my parents. I was living at their house. I was taking my dad's pain pills. And I was doing all of his pain pills and it took, I mean, he, you know, crashed his helicopter in Vietnam. And so he lived with a lot of pain and I, I took every pain pill in the whole house. I, and then one day there was this note on the table and it said, whoever took these, I hope you needed them more than me. And I remember thinking to myself, like, I'm the scum of the earth. It didn't even occur to me that he needed those. I just thought he had such a stockpile because he didn't want them, you know, like, and it, it didn't occur to me that he only took them when he needed them because he wants them to work. And so that, that was a heartbreaking um, thing. And, and I think that fueled further and further into my addiction. Um, So I, I was like at this point where I would wake up and I would just take whatever was in the house to knock me out. I would take a handful of of, uh, Dimetab or Benadryl, or I would drink a bottle of Listerine, cough syrup, like whatever it was to knock me back out because I believed that if I was asleep, I couldn't make a mistake. And I was, you know, living at my parents' house. This is right before I went to jail. And they didn't want me around their kids. You know what I mean? Um, Cause I was really setting a horrible example for them. Sure. And I realized I needed to go to prison. I realized that I wasn't ever going to quit unless I went to prison. And that was my bright idea. I was thinking, okay, I've got this plan. I took my brother's checkbook. I wrote myself a check for a hundred dollars. I went and I cashed it. I signed his name. I got the money. I went and got high. As soon as the meth ran out, I went to the police station and I said, I'm here to go to prison. And they were like, what? And they're like, okay. 
you go home and you you sleep. I we need you to get some sleep. You come back on Monday and then we'll take your statement. Like they could not believe that I was there just like, no, I did it. I this was my plan. I was trying to tell them. They just thought I was a nut job. And so oh my gosh. I went back and you know, and they filed the charges and everything. And by the time I actually saw the judge, I was in treatment. And so, you know, I I luckily had a judge who told me to shut up and not say another word in court because he was like, do you have an attorney? I'm like, no, I, this is my plan. And he just was like, shut up. Cause if, if you keep talking, you're going to tie my hands and I'll have to send you to prison. And I don't think that's where you belong. And he made me get an attorney. And luckily that experience taught me that I never want to go to jail again. So Mm. years later, when I got back into meth and I started dealing, um, I realized and I knew the risk I was putting myself in um, to to end up going to prison. Luckily, I never got caught. Wow, Um, that's amazing. I never got caught. And um, there came a point where I no longer could justify selling meth. And this was one of my very first uh, spiritual experiences, the Lord totally chastened me, and um, and I'm grateful. Uh, my very favorite person on the whole planet is my baby brother John. He was like four years old when uh, when I first got into drugs, and he just, you know, when I had relapsed, I I I kept that hidden. I mean, my whole family knew I was back on drugs, and we didn't really, um, they didn't really want to associate with me, which I don't blame them because I was a nightmare for him when I was on drugs before. John came to visit me one day when I, when he was about 15. He told me that, well, he didn't tell me. He, he, he was making a joke about um, uh, heroin. He, he said, Jen, you've never chased the black dragon? And I'm like, no, what is that? And I, I asked my dealer about it later and and he said, no, he's smoking heroin. If he said that to you, he's on heroin. And so I called my brother and I was like, John, are you, are you on, are you using heroin? And he's like, well, you know, I've, I've tried it a few times and I, and I just was devastated because he's 15 years old and he's hooked on heroin. I remember being so mad at the idea of anybody giving my brother drugs, like furious. I was just couldn't believe like, who's gonna give a 15 year old kid drugs, especially heroin, something that's so deadly. And I just remember like, I was so mad. And I heard this voice say, Jen, who the heck do you think you are? Every single person that you are selling meth to is somebody's brother, somebody's sister, somebody's mother, somebody's father, they are loved deeply by someone and especially me, meaning God, you know, like I knew that was a, I knew that was a message from him that he was not, and I needed it. That was the justification that I, I could no longer justify selling meth anymore because of that experience. And so I, decided I needed to learn how to make money in a way that wasn't committing any crime. And so I set off as a dumpster diver and started selling stuff on eBay. And a lot of uh, meth addicts start to show physical manifestations of their meth addiction. 
there's a, a hollowing out of the of the face. There are scabs and things that appear. Teeth have issues mm-hmm. on meth, and uh, you know, one of our guests, you know, told us that she had lost a tooth or something and wasn't even aware of it because of that time. Did you go through some of the physical uh, parts of meth addiction? Oh yeah. Um, I, well, I had a lot of like, you know, like my back teeth started coming out. Um, I, I luckily didn't lose any of like my front teeth until I, I ended up getting robbed at gunpoint. I was so mad this guy had pulled a gun on me that I decided, you know, I'm going to give him a piece of my mind before he kills me. Like I, I counted on the fact that he was going to shoot me because my dad always taught me, you don't pull a gun unless you're going to use it. And so, you know, this dude's sitting in my living room and I got a gun in my face. And, and so I just told him off and I told him exactly what I thought of him. And next thing I know, I'm like stumbling through the hall of my house. Um, and I, I just knew my face hurt and it hurt so bad. And I didn't dare look in the mirror because I was worried that I had gotten shot. And so I called my friend and I told her I got shot in the face. I don't know what I, I, I got knocked out cold. It turns out that he shattered. He just punched me in the face. It was a really good punch and it shattered my orbital socket and my cheekbone. And it was totally kicked totally caved in. And I remember when I went in to get the surgery, the surgeon was trying to tell me, okay, this is what we're going to do. And it was like too gory for me to like, I'm like, I don't want to know. I can't, I can't know. I can't, I I don't do well with blood or, you know what I mean? And so I didn't, I didn't really want to know the details, but I, I regret not knowing the details because when I woke up, he had pulled all of my teeth um, on top in order to get through do the surgery up through my mouth so that I wouldn't have an outward scar to put in these titanium plates. So um, my teeth are 100% fake. You um, wouldn't know. You wouldn't know by looking <laughs> at you. So, uh, wow, Jen, this, there are so many twists and turns in your life. How, how many years did you use meth? Um, 20. 20 well, years. The last, 13 was, um, yeah, 13 straight years, never came down ever. At some point you made a change. What was the beginning of the change away from drugs? I was kind of bouncing between home, like homelessness. Um, I was technically homeless on occasion. I'd go stay at my parents' house, but but for the most part, um, I was, you know, living in a, living in my truck. And I had a storage unit and I remember one day just feeling so sad. I could not stand the way that I was feeling and meth didn't seem to be working anymore. I, weed didn't help. Uh, I was taking pills. Nothing was working. I was drinking alcohol. Like it was like, I would always you know, if meth wasn't working, I'd try this or try that, you know what I mean? But nothing was working. And I remember calling my friend, this was like one of my friends who she knew I was an addict. She was always there for me if I ever needed to talk. She, 
Um, she was like my therapist at one point, and then uh, she stopped being a therapist and we became friends. But she was just always really, really good to me. And I remember calling her one day just because I had this lump in my throat and I couldn't get rid of it. Her husband got on the phone and told me that um, she had passed away that morning. I remember feeling this hole just rip through my soul. Like I had never lost a friend, like close friend like that. And she died of breast cancer. And I'm like, I didn't even know she had it. Like, like she didn't tell me that, you know what I mean? And, and I was so like, what the heck? And I remember when he told me that she died, I felt this hand kind of squeeze my heart. And I heard this voice tell me to go to the funeral. He's left a friend for me. And so I went to this funeral, even though I was a mess, I was totally high as a kite, um, totally hollow inside. And this lady approaches me and she said, are you Jen? And I said, yeah. And she said, our friend asked if I would keep an eye on you after she passed away. So I just want to give you my number and let you know, like, I'm around. If you, if you ever want to talk, um, just give me a call. And so a couple of days later, I give her this, I send her this text and I said, have you ever felt like you are so far down a hole that it is impossible to ever find the light? Like you've made so many mistakes that you can't ever get free of it. You can't ever recover. And she said, where are you? And she drove I was hanging out in Ogden. I was totally drunk. And I just, she picks me up and I got in her car and I just kind of threw up on her. Not like literally, but just told her like I had this meth addiction and it was so powerful. And it had me with this iron grip and I didn't know how to quit. And I knew you know, from my times of being in recovery, you know, going through rehab and stuff that, you know, I know that God was, is the key, you know, but I didn't know how. And so I asked her, I said, how do you give something to God? Like, what does that even mean? And she said, I don't know, ask him. And I'm <laughs> like, I, you know, addicts really want answers the easy way right I didn't have a testimony I felt like God hated me I didn't feel like I could ever have a relationship with him I didn't feel like he wanted a relationship with me it was like you're gonna tell me to pray that's what you're gonna tell me that's your advice and I was like devastated because it's like prayer doesn't work for me when I pray it's like I'm talking to the wall and it's always been that way. And I've done so many things that God has, I mean, he'll never want to have a relationship with me because of all the stuff I've done. And I just, I wanted her to give me the answer. And she said, Jen, I don't know how it is that you're praying, but I think you're doing it wrong. You've got this idea in your mind. And it's like she could literally read my mind. She's, she's like, you've got this idea in your head. You have to say things in a certain order. You have to say things a certain way. You have to fold your arms. You have to get on your knees. You have to do all this stuff. 
And it isn't like that. You just have to talk to him as if he's sitting right there next to you, as if you are the most important thing in his whole world, and as if he's your father who loves you so much. And then I told her, I said, well, you know, I heard that you can pray and ask God to take away your addiction, and he will. So I have been praying for that. I mean, it hasn't been working, but I I pray every day for that. Isn't that good? And she said, Jen, that is the dumbest thing I've ever heard anyone say. <laughs> and that stung, of course. Yeah. You know, um, you instant bright red face. Like I was so embarrassed. And and she goes, God doesn't work like that. You know, he's not going to take away the natural consequence that has occurred from all those years of you chasing meth, you chasing weed, you chasing all, you know, you put a God before him. And it was all the things, anything that I was addicted to. Ultimately, that's what I did. I put that as my God. Because anytime I had a problem, I turned to that. So what were your next steps to get clean? So a few days after that conversation, I remember feeling like I was done. I I decided I wanted to end my life. Somebody texted me a song by David Archuleta. Like, it was so random. And it was the song called Glorious. Mm-hmm. And if anyone who's listening hasn't heard it please do because it was the most amazing song and it what it did for me like I I I can't even put it into words um because he talks all about how we all have moments where we feel aimless and we don't know where we belong or where we fit in this life and if life is this beautiful symphony we all play a part in our own melodies that make that the grand and glorious song that it is. So I just decided after hearing that, it was so profound. Um, I decided to just give this prayer idea a chance. Um, I drove my car over to my storage unit and I pulled around back and I just started talking and I just started pouring out my heart. And, And to be honest, to be perfectly honest, this whole prayer started as it started out as me trying to plead my case. I was trying to give God all these reasons why it should be okay for me to end my life. I I poured, I mean, this prayer lasted at least a half an hour. I was sobbing and I was telling him all the things about me that I hated so much, all the things that I had done that I regretted all the lives that I had destroyed. I feel like from selling drugs and, and there were things about me that, that I felt so much shame about. And and I had been living with all that shame for so many years and, and getting high was the only way to ever like numb it and get free from it. But it was always there and it was always building and it was always growing and it was always overpowering me. And, and I, I told him how sorry I was that he had wasted a body on me, that that I came here and he had this plan for me of who I could become. And I never was going to like live up to that. And I was so sorry. 
And I just wanted him to say it's okay to end it. And I gave him all the reasons. Like, I mean, I confessed everything, everything about me that I knew that nobody else knew, but I knew he knew all of it came out and the snot, you know, and the tears and like my face, like, I don't cry like a really pretty person. I, you know, like my <laughs> face cry. all swollen. Sure. Yeah, yeah, totally ugly cry. Yeah. And I caught, caught this glimpse of myself in the mirror and it like startled me. And I'm just like, you know, I have snot everywhere. And I'm, I suddenly got this fear that someone's going to come around the corner and they're going to catch me falling my head off, talking to nobody looking like that. And just like, I was so afraid they were going to laugh at me. And that idea of, I just couldn't like handle that thought of that. And, and I just was, and it was like, I could hear Satan just saying, Jen, you knew this wasn't going to work. This was a dumb idea. Just stop, give up. And so I went to start my truck and, and I stopped and I asked God if he was real and if he knew my name and if he knew all these things that I'd done in so much detail and all these things I felt so much shame for and if it mattered to him, like he was still concerned with me, did he care? And I never have ever felt an answer to a prayer before this moment, but it was so profound. I felt this force of energy just like hit my body. I felt that same hand just squeeze my heart. The same hand that that I heard on the, when I was hearing about my friend die, you know, and, and I just, I felt myself lifted and chills everywhere. And I heard this voice say to me, Jen, do you know how long I've just been waiting for you to turn to me, to give me a chance, to tell me these things, to ask for my help? Like, I, he didn't even hesitate. He ran to me. He ran to me. He scooped me up into his hand. He said, I have you. Whatever it is that you are going through and whatever it is that you're facing, we can handle this together. I can't explain what that changed in me, but but I knew in that moment, this is what an answer to a prayer feels like. And I would never mistake it again. Um, and then I asked him if he would give me the desire to change. Mm. Because I suddenly saw that if I could just shift the amount of focus and energy I was putting into chasing dope, to chasing all these things that were destroying me. And, and I mean, that's really what I was doing. And if I could just shift that desire and shift it into chasing him and make him my drug of choice. I mean, seriously the stuff I would do to get my drug of choice. And like, I suddenly saw that if I could just shift that to him, like it blew my mind. Like I suddenly realized that there was so much, my life could be so different than I could possibly imagine if I could just make that change. And what's so interesting about that word change is the very definition of repentance means to change to turn away and and that was 
that was what I struggled with ever since I was a little kid is that warped understanding of what repentance was and how to do it and how to continue doing it. And, you know, like every time I would try to repent as a kid, I just felt worse and worse because I would always screw up again. And so it was like I couldn't be good. But if I could just like it was almost like I saw the freedom Mm. that would come as a result of me unburdening because I just unburdened myself to him. All of it. And it was like standing on a mountaintop after you just conquered the highest mountain and just feeling like, oh, freedom. That was the beginning of my my whole entire transformation. And I'm not going to say that it's been easy since I've gotten clean because it has been a very, very, very difficult road. I've been sober for seven years. and. I've only relapsed one time and that was 30 days after I got clean. <laughs> I wow. I took I took a sleeping pill and told on myself at treatment and anyway had to reset my my sobriety birthday but I I've never relapsed since. That is amazing. Jen, what a powerful, beautiful, incredible story. And now 7 years clean. You know, looking back now, I can see the Lord had his hand in a lot of things. I got my patriarchal blessing when I was 39 years old. And suddenly, because I gave up, like I gave up on that dream long time ago. I gave up on the dream of ever going through the temple a long time ago because I was just screwed up and I was never going to be able to be good. I suddenly, once I got my patriarchal blessing, I suddenly realized that there's this whole person. He had all these plans for me and I just hadn't, I just hadn't discovered him yet. Uh, There, there may be people listening who know deep down and maybe haven't ever shared it with anybody that they have an addiction, not so much advice for what physically to do, but what counsel would you have now being on somewhat the other side of it? So I was in treatment with roughly 38 people um, that were in my treatment program and 25 of them are now dead, including this since, since I've gotten clean, the death of friends. um, And then also two of my siblings have also passed away. Um, both my little brother and my little sister were addicted to heroin and struggled with that battle. And my sister passed away. And then four years later, my brother took his life. I had someone ask me once, you know, they said, well, Jen, you, you like have this amazing life and you talk about your old life and how sad it was, but I don't see that. So I want to know why it matters. This is a nine-year-old kid saying this to me. And I'm like, oh, that's not what I want any kid to hear in my message is that that you can go play around with with drugs and then just get clean. And, and you know, you can sin a little and then you can repent and move on. You know what I mean? Right. Like no, it, that's so important. It's so dangerous. Yeah. Drugs today are so dangerous. There's this program that I'm heavily involved with, and it is it's. Uh, the church is um, 
addiction recovery program. And the cool thing about their um, their program is they deal with all kinds of addictions, anything from negative thoughts to pornography addictions to like food addictions, like you name it. Um, everyone is welcome that that's struggling with something. Um, I, I have a really good friend who told me that if he could change the name of that program, he would. And I, and I asked him what he would change it to. And he said he would call it the atonement reality process mm. because it is the process that makes the atonement a reality in your life. And so if there is anyone struggling with anything, the one tool, the super powerful, uh, the superpower that we all have is the atonement of Jesus Christ. And what I love about the 12 steps is, I mean, okay, it's repentance for dummies. I mean, <laughs> think about it. Yeah. It is, it's the repentance process that's broken up into 12 tiny steps just because it makes it a little easier. You know, if you can do little steps at a time and it grows into this, like, the most valuable thing you'll ever discover if you work that program um, and allow Christ and his atonement to heal you from whatever it is you're struggling with. So let's move on to your charity work. Okay. Because I understand that's a big part of your life and something really that sounds just amazing. Yeah. Um, so I, I truly feel like I was led to, to my purpose. Um, I feel like my experience uh, being homeless in the winter prepared me for something greater. Um, when I had been in treatment for about three months, I went to this emergency preparedness conference and I was learning about this technology called foam clothing. And what I was hearing was that if you, you know, ever had an emergency and you didn't have access to a fuel source, um, you could just wear these clothes and you could stay warm even if you got wet. And I just remember thinking like, man, that's crazy. Like I remember sitting in my storage unit being so cold, you couldn't even think. I, I just started thinking about like how many people who are living on the streets could benefit from this kind of like clothing. Um, the first treatment center that I went to, the one I met my husband in, um, seven people that we were in treatment with left that treatment program and were later found frozen to death. So hearing about like what this technology could do, I just got super excited. And then I heard how much it cost and it was like astronomical. So it was like $780 for a suit mm. or $800 for a sleeping bag. And I just remember thinking to myself like, man, that doesn't even make sense. So I just got like kind of obsessed with this idea. I didn't know how I was going to get this technology into the hands of the people who needed it the most, but I, I just kind of was obsessed with it and couldn't stop thinking about it. And a couple of days later, I said this prayer and I asked Heavenly Father how he was doing. Hmm. And, you know, because I had heard in in a recovery meeting, you know, like, you know, when you, when you have a relationship that goes both ways, that's, that's a good relationship. 
when it's just one-sided, it's one-sided, you know, it's yeah. dysfunctional. And right. so I was feeling super heartbroken for God. And I, and, and I poured my heart out to him and I told him how sorry I was that, that there were so many people that were always angry at him. And, and there were people that were angry at each other and all this fighting going on. And I, and that I was so sad that this kind of technology that really could help people live isn't even available to anyone who really, really needs it. And I, and I just, I just poured my heart out to him, told him how heartbroken I was for him. And I wanted to know what I could do to help him have a better day. Mm -hmm. And about an hour later, he answered me and, you know, he kind of talks to me in my own language. So it's kind of cool, but he's like, Jen, I think it is super cute that you care how my heart is doing, but please remember who I am. I am the healer of all things that are broken. The thing that is hurting my heart is not the way people are treating me. It's the way that my children are treating each other. Mm. And so this idea that you have to somehow get this technology into the hands of people who need it the most, I want you to run with it. I want you to go to the tops of organizations that help homeless people. I want you to tell everyone you meet about this idea and and tell them about the technology that it even exists. And if you, and keep in mind, this project, this idea is way bigger than you. And it was, it was huge. It was the hugest idea I'd ever had, but it's not bigger than me. And God, God's saying this to me. It's this project is bigger than you, but it is not bigger than me. And if you keep me as your boss, you keep me as the CEO of this whole this whole plan that you have. I will lead you to every single resource that you need, every dollar, every helping hand, and this will grow into something you can't even possibly imagine. And so I did. I I mean, I told everyone who would listen, I wouldn't shut up about it. Uh, this organization got started um, only after I came back to church. I had been inactive for 25 years and I started coming back to church and I was trying to get my temple recommend and my bishop asked me to, to meet with his wife and learn how to do family history before he would give me my recommend. And this lady showed up with a sewing project and I'm like, wait, you know how to sew? And she's like, yeah. And she shows me her basement. She's got this huge sewing room and she goes, I make costumes and it's so much fun. And like, I was like, oh my gosh, can you make me a pattern? And I just threw up on her and I told her all about my idea and how I wanted to make this, you know, anyway, she was like, yeah. So she, she pulled out five different prototypes of, you know, different ideas that I had been mentioning of, you know, ways that we could, could do it. And, and we decided to make a vest. It really kind of took off from there. So, so now you distribute this type of clothing uh -huh. to the homeless. What a blessing. Well, and let me just tell you, I went and bought one of those suits, you know, spent all that money to, to, to try it out because, you know, when God sends you on a mission, it's probably a good idea to go get a testimony of it. <laughs> so. I wore this suit after church one day and I broke the ice on a stream in my neighborhood and I laid down in it and by far dumbest idea I've ever had. <laughs> I mean, it was so cold. It was 10 degrees outside. I was so freezing. And so I got out of the water and started walking home and like, I warmed up within 45 seconds and walked around for two hours, totally soaking wet, that cold. 
What and you can't, an amazing thing. You can't fake it. Like when you're that cold, you know? Yeah. Oh, <laughs> so, Jen, that's amazing. So if people want to learn more about this and get involved, what's the, where's the best place for them to go? Um, so our website is uh, turtleshelterproject.org, or you can find us on Facebook or Instagram under Turtle Shelter Project. Um, Turtle Shelter Project. Okay. Turtle Shelter. Yeah. yeah. Um, a lot of people will call it the Turtle Shell Project, but if, if you look that up, you're probably not going to find us. It's Turtle Shelter. Um, and, you know, it's the idea is it's like a shelter. It's like wearing a shelter on your back. You know, yeah. you, you, your body harnesses your heat, the heat and your body is a furnace. And this clothing helps keep it in, even if you get wet. In the five years that we've been in business, um, we've handed out 1,800 vests. And we oh. have a goal this year to make 1,000 more. And what's so interesting about the vests is they only cost $30 for the materials, but that's with 100% donated labor. So we are a traveling service project. We get invited by, you know, relief societies or young men, young women's activities. And they invite us. We, we bring all the materials. We show up with everything we need to make the vests and they provide the space and the helping hands for a certain amount of time. So. Mm. there's i mean all of the the vests that we have made um have been made by i mean thousands of volunteers that is just incredible jen what a beautiful mission in life and i have so thoroughly enjoyed hearing your story uh you know and and our i don't know how much our audience can hear but i've cried halfway through your story uh <laughs> and it's just so mm -hmm. beautiful and the redeeming power of the savior and how it's manifested through your life. You are here for a purpose, that is for sure. We're going to wrap things up with the question that we ask all of our guests, and that is, Jen, what does being a member of the church mean to you? Well, honestly, it's the most priceless gift that I've ever been given. I didn't know the value of it. it took me 38 years to figure out the value of it. But I know that I am a daughter of God, and that is the one identity that matters most in this world. I'm not an addict. I'm not this. I'm not that. I am a daughter of God. And that's the most important thing. The other thing that it means to me is that I get to make and keep sacred covenants, which is amazing to me because if I keep my bargain, my end of the bargain, he keeps his. And so he's bound by it. And so it's beautiful to know how much he loves us and how much he's willing to give us just by simply keeping our promises. And the last thing that it means to me is I love the fact that I'm going to be with my siblings again and see my family that's passed on. And that's a very comforting, comforting feeling. Um, you know, when you've dealt with a loss of, losing people that are close to you, knowing that, that you'll be with them again. She is an amazing daughter of God, a truly amazing soul. Jen Spencer, thank you so much for sharing your Latter-day life with us. We appreciate it. Thank you. And my special thanks to my guest, Jen Spencer. I was so touched by this interview. You know, I cried while we were doing the interview, and then I cried while I was editing it. 
And I'm sure I'll listen back to it and cry again because Jen is just an amazing soul. What a beautiful, beautiful message of the healing power of the atonement. And she's doing amazing things and touching lives. Jen, thank you so much. Uh, This week in my Latter-day Life, you know, I want to go back to last week uh, where we had technical difficulties. And by technical difficulties, it makes it sound like I'm blaming the computer. It was my difficulties. It was my fault. I had pressed a couple of wrong keys, and that literally messed up the entire episode, made it unpublishable, and I had to go back and do a whole lot of editing, and it just stressed me out, and uh, it turned out that that was really an answer to prayers. We almost did not get this episode out today, uh, because as I mentioned at the beginning of the show, I came down with COVID, and I've been in bed. Uh, It's Sunday night now, the night before releasing the episode, and I had a little bit of energy to finish this up and to get it out, but I'd been actually thinking and praying about, uh, you know, just the best direction for the show, and, you know, it takes a lot of work to put this together every single week, and we have done that for more than 200 episodes every Monday, and in talking to uh, Gene and Skylar as a team, one of the things we've realized is, um, well, and I should say also thanks to you know, my friends, uh, to Jason and, and Nick and to my wife. And, you know, I've consulted with a lot of people because it's hard, especially getting it out every Monday. The Monday morning, the idea of getting it out every single Monday was so people knew when to count on it and to build up our listenership. We've been very blessed to build up a huge listenership. And uh, at the risk of that, I guess, we are going away from releasing an episode every single Monday. And I will just say that we will have episodes coming out regularly, and they could come out on a Wednesday afternoon, and it could come out on a Saturday night, could be any time, but it won't be every Monday. We're still planning on regular episodes, pretty much weekly. It may stretch a week and a half, it may only be five days, but as we have episodes ready and we feel it's the time, this will give us a little more flexibility. To be honest, there are a lot of Sunday nights where I still need to put in a half hour, an hour, or even two hours into the show, and we have family obligations or things with my calling or things with church generally, and suddenly it's 10, 10.30 at night, and uh, I still have that couple of hours to do, and I'm getting a little older, <laughs> and uh, staying up till one in the morning to work on the show really isn't in the cards anymore, and I think that moving this to just being a regularly released show uh, we'll take some of that pressure off. So if you could, if you're not already subscribed, if you make sure you're subscribed, then you'll get the notification and we will continue to have uh, episodes on a regular basis. And I'm looking forward to that change, uh, but continuing to be able to do such amazing conversations uh, with people like Jen tonight. And that's what's happening this week in my Latter-day life. Thank you so much for tuning in. Thank you for all of your support. We are so blessed to have just the best listeners. The Latter-day Lives podcast was produced by Gene Chittister, social media by Skylar Fleming. I've been your host, Sean Rapier. I think that's all we got for you this week. So until we meet again, there's a great, big, beautiful world out there. Go be in it, just not of it. Thanks for listening. (laughs) 